The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga will be heading to Washington on Friday for meetings with U.S. President Joe Biden. This will be Biden's first meeting with a foreign leader since coming to office as president. And I think it shows the importance that he's attaching to the relationship with Japan in particular, but Asia more broadly. Now, on their agenda is going to be infrastructure, and it's going to be very, very important. It's going to be a key topic in their meetings. And Biden's been talking a lot about these past few weeks about building an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Now, it doesn't sound like he wants to take China head on to build roads, ports, bridges everywhere around the world. Instead, it appears that the focus is here in Asia. Well, specifically where I am here in Southeast Asia. And the kind of infrastructure they're talking about building is in the energy sector and the telecommunications sector. And there's a really interesting debate, Kobus, that's going on here in Southeast Asia that's very similar to the discussions that we've been talking about in Africa about these countries in these regional blocks not wanting to have to pick a side between the U.S. and China in their burgeoning rivalry. The South China Morning Post over the weekend ran an interesting story, though, that said even though these countries don't want to have to pick a side, leading scholars now in the region are basically coming down and kind of ascertaining the situation, saying whether these countries are intending to align themselves with either the Chinese or the Americans it's kind of starting to happen. And whether these countries use Chinese or non-Chinese technology is one of the barometers of which way they're leaning. So here's how these scholars in the SCMP article broke it down. They said, leaning the pro-China direction, uh, Cambodia and Laos. That is, I don't think there's any dispute over that. On the pro-US side, again, in a tech context, Vietnam and Singapore are both using Ericsson and Nokia for their 5G networks. There's no Chinese technology in their 5G cores. To be fair, there's lots of Huawei in Vietnam. In fact, the router that this podcast is being recorded on is a Huawei router. There's a Huawei store in my local mall. So Huawei is very present, just not in the 5G network. Then they said Thailand, the Philippines, and Malaysia have moved away from the U.S. in recent years and are becoming more embedded in the Chinese orbit. And in those cases, Huawei does have a presence. And Indonesia seems to be the only country, according to these scholars, that seems to be in the middle. So Kobus, I think it's very interesting what their assessment was here in ASEAN, and we've talked in many cases before on the show about how what happens here in ASEAN really does, in many ways, could set an example for what happens in other parts of the world, especially in Africa. Yes, you know, and it's, it's really interesting to see them shaking out. I guess the one the one difference is, like certain countries in 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 ASEAN, I think are that little bit more empowered to to make this kind of choice, particularly because because they already have such high levels of infrastructure. You know, like Singapore, Singapore being a key a key example. Um, you know, so so I think they, they they probably have a little bit more kind of leeway to to decide, you know, or to to factor in geopolitical factors into this kind of tech decision. It sounds to me that uh, that in Africa, a lot of that decision comes down to affordability and the getting getting contractors willing to roll out these kind of massive net, networks frequently for the first time. And so, you know, there, I think that that kind of constrains the, the, the range of choice that the African governments can make. And so far, we haven't seen an African government really saying that they're not going to be explicitly not using Huawei. Definitely. In fact, the Americans right now on their Huawei campaign in Africa are 0 for 55 which is not a very good record. One that's noteworthy because they've probably tried in every African country to try to get them not to use Huawei, but they have been wholly unsuccessful. Today, we're going to talk about China-Africa tech. It's been a while since we've picked up that conversation. Given all that's going on right now, 
in the geopolitical sphere with the Biden administration trying to build momentum with its friends and allies to build a Belt and Road Initiative that rivals the Chinese, and at the same time, tech being the focus of that, there's been a flurry of tech news that's been going on in the China-Africa space over the past couple of, let's say, two to three months. Uh, let me start with one little interesting item here. A lot of people don't know that it's actually a South African company that's the single largest shareholder in the Chinese internet giant Tencent. Now, back in 1992, the Cape Town-based Naspers made a $32 million investment in a then little-known internet company based in Shenzhen. Well, here we are today, and that relatively small investment has blossomed into an equity worth $239 billion. Now, if that isn't the best investment in the history of all investments, $32 million turning into $239 billion. Wow. So uh, just last week... Uh, Naspers, well, it's actually a unit of Naspers known as Procious. Uh, they decided that they wanted to, you know, trim a field, a little bit of their of their holdings, to capture a little bit of the profit. So they sold off two percent of their stake for fourteen point six billion dollars. Now, don't pity them in any way. They still own twenty nine percent of the company and remain its single largest shareholder. So very interesting little China Africa connection there in Tencent. And also in, uh, and it also affects the Johannesburg Stock Exchange quite a bit when we see the investigations that are currently underway on tech giants like Alibaba and uh, Tencent. So, let's get some some perspective on this from Alexandria Williams, who's a Nairobi-based tech journalist. She's also spent a long time living in China, where we first came across her as a YouTuber and covering tech there. And she's also the author of a brand new weekly tech column. We're calling it the Tech Giant Digest on the China Africa Project website and for our subscribers to our paid newsletter. Alexandria, very good afternoon to you. Thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to have you on the show. We've talked about doing this for a very long time. But given how much news there's going on right now, we have a lot of ground to cover. And what we're going to kind of go through today is a bunch of Chinese tech brands. All of them have big announcements in either Africa or the Middle East. Uh, let's start one by one. We're going to go with Huawei. Uh, last month, Safaricom did an about face. Now, if you recall from an earlier discussion that we had, Safaricom said that it was going to postpone the launch of its 5G network so it could focus more attention on converting the considerable number of 2G and 3G customers to its 4G service. The company mm -hmm. then turned around in late March and started limited 5G service all of a sudden out of nowhere. That was a little bit of a surprise to me, using a combination of equipment from both Huawei and Nokia. Now, this immediately prompted a reaction from the United States, but at the same time, Joe Mushiru, who is the ICT minister for Kenya, and he's been very outspoken in terms of defending Safaricom's decisions on their choice to use Huawei. He didn't specifically call out Huawei by name in the soundbite that I'm gonna play for you, but it's very clear who he's referring to. And here he reasserted the long-standing position that he's had that any concerns about Huawei are politically motivated and that Kenyan residents have nothing to worry about. Now, the soundbite has a little bit of static on it, so bear with me, but it's really important to hear what he has to say. This is a great day for the country that we are now launching with the or safaricom is launching a technology that will allow you to download uh, you know one gig in one second five gig in three minutes i mean that's uh, it, it's a step change it's something that is very big something that's very important and of course uh, as government we have been uh, aware of some of those questions that you've talked about of uh, suppliers and technologies and so on but we've seen that some of those are just more political postures as opposed to the current uh, test of the technology. We've, we've been working with these partners for a long time. This is not the first time. So uh, we can't say as a country we've had any challenges or questions uh, about how they provided us the technology, about the security of that technology. But the Safaricom are the suppliers and uh, they can tell you that, you know, we use the services and as government we've been able to, to verify that the services are secure and uh, that citizens should feel uh, comfortable to actually use the services. There we go, Alexandria. He is not worried at all about the security of Huawei in contrast to 
the expressions of doubt coming from the United States and to some extent even from Europe. Tell us more about the situation with Huawei and Safaricom. Sure. Um, so the first thing that I think is really interesting about the uh, ICT minister, Joe Machiru, is that he used to work for Google. He was the head of East Africa's Google office. So he's very well versed in dealing with the two tech giants, those from the U.S. and those, through chi- those from China. In my mind, this return to in this decision to roll out, roll out 5G in Kenya through Huawei made a lot of sense. And in my mind, I never actually thought that Kenya would falter. Because one thing that we have to remember is that Huawei is deeply entrenched in Kenya's whole smart cities project. So Kenya has this project in the works where by 2030, they want to create a few tech cities around Kenya that are supposed to be the tech hubs for the Silicon Savannah. Um, and Huawei is actually supposed to help roll out a data center and other vital tech within those smart cities. We also have to remember that Huawei is part of Kenya's Safe Cities project. We always hear about the Safe Cities project being discussed in Uganda and other countries throughout the region, but we can't forget that uh, Kenya is also involved. So in 2014, Safaricom and um, Huawei partnered to deploy over 1,800 CCTV cameras in Nairobi under the Safe Cities project. So Huawei and Kenya have had a long relationship that I think that they will continue to exercise as time goes on. And this is just part of a growing trend that we're seeing where a lot of Chinese companies are becoming regional digital service providers. Uh, Huawei is also supposed to establish the Peace Cable, you know, the Pakistan and East Africa Connecting Europe Cable, which is like a 15,000 kilometer route with landing sites in Djibouti and Kenya, Seychelles and South Africa. So I think that we'll see more uptake of Huawei's technology from African countries as time goes on. Um, Now, one thing that I've seen a lot with this Huawei, Safaricom, Kenya debate is that people are really concerned with security. And I think that the security concerns are there and it's something that we should think about. But one of my biggest concerns and one thing that I've been increasingly more interested in is labor concerns. So when 5G was rolled out in China, when all of this discussion around 5G came out in China, one of the most discussed use cases were for heavy industries and farming. It's this idea that you can use uh, 5G technology to operate heavy machinery in places far, far away. Now, if this is the plan with 5G for the future of Kenya, it would kind of make sense because it would fall in line with a broader plan from the AU to retire the hoe, as they're calling it. So basically, they want to decrease the amount of human labor that's put into agriculture. But if this is done, this will mean that Kenya has a really long road to go with also making sure that people are technologically ready and that the labor market can sustain this massive um, shift that's going to happen in the future. So just circling back to the issue of, of smart cities and safe cities and, and the kind of rollout of, of this of this Huawei-powered kind of surveillance technology, has there been um, indications so far from East Africa and from Kenya particularly about how successful these have been? I saw numbers saying that that crime in Nairobi itself dropped after it came, after it was, you know, kind of started there and then it kind of started creeping back up. So as far as the Safe Cities project in Nairobi goes, just from walking on the streets and experiencing life in Nairobi and um, you don't hear people talk about the Safe Cities projects and I haven't seen many of the cameras and I don't think that they're used that often from my experience, even my experience in having in dealing with the police um, a few times here. The cameras aren't used and it's not something that's been, um, it's not something that's really discussed here. Where it has been discussed in detail is Uganda, of course, especially when it comes to elections. Um, so you had the incident that went, that went on with Bobby Wine where they were using um, cameras to track his movements and things like that. But as far as the way that it's been rolled out in Kenya, there hasn't been much discussion about it. I, I, I don't know what Kenya's plans are for the future, but I think that their interest with 5G seems to be more in the realm of data centers. Uh, Kenya has this plan to become, you know, the data center of East Africa. And I think that they're hoping that through 5G in the cloud that they can do this. Yeah. And just to be clear, there's no verifiable connection that Huawei itself was involved in the surveillance of Bobby Wine. And that was also a question that came up in Zambia when the Wall Street Journal did a great investigative report last year that revealed that both Zambia and Uganda were using Huawei technology to spy on domestic political opponents, but again, they were just using the technology and not at and not contracting with Huawei to do it. So, just want to kind of put that out there. Uh, Kobus, when we when we heard the comments of Joe Mashiru, and that's not the first time 
that Michel has been on record in pushing back against the Americans, much like your own president, Cyril Ramaphosa, was very, very angry when he said that Americans are jealous of Huawei technology. He said that back in 2019. Muschietto, almost every year for the past couple of years, has said, listen, the Americans are not going to tell us what vendors we use for our 5G network. But listening to that statement at the launch of the 5G service, when we talk about expressions of African agency, in in my view, this is what it sounds like. Yeah, well, you know, this is definitely them making a decision and then sticking to the decision. Um, you know, so so you know, I, I tend to see it in that way as well. I think I think with it comes a, a kind of some kind of calculated choice, like decisions about about affordability, about, about who's willing to work in Africa and who isn't, and also in in terms of like the amount of risk. You know, because uh, you know the uh, so much of the so much of the logic of the U.S. pushback against Huawei comes you know, embedded. In the idea that that countries in in the U.S. well, obviously the U.S. itself, that the, in North America and in Europe, they these are these kind of rich, influential countries, and with with the the related fears of interference, for example, in the electoral processes, as we've seen, you know, Russian interference in both in the you know, in, particularly in the U.S., you know, it, it has kind of these massive ramifications that run a, around the world. In the case of Africa, I think there's, there's this kind of calculated. You know, it's kind of calculation that that those kind of risks are somewhat smaller, um, and I think with it, you know, cynically, I, I assume that that um, that the governments assume that that the people who would be using these kind of backdoors would be them, and and for that reason, they could have them kind of built in no matter who the the contractor is. I mean, that's just my personal reading on it. Alexandria, does that sound like it makes sense to you? Yeah, no, it sounds. It definitely sounds like it makes sense to me. I do think that this, statements like this, as of those from Joe Matera, are a, a statement of African independence, especially in the tech industry, and yeah, a pushback of the of the U.S.'s efforts to restrict and dictate how African governments and African countries are positioning themselves for the future. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, let's move on to the smartphone market. For those of you not familiar with the dynamics in the African smartphone market, it is. Absolutely phenomenal. There is a Shenzhen-based company called Transon, and they have a suite of brands of three brands, Techno, Infinix, and Itel, and they together have a commanding 48.2% share of the African smartphone market. Now consider this, it's three times the size of the closest competitor, Samsung. That being said, even though Transon has this dominant position in the market, uh, Xiaomi thinks it has phones to sell to African consumers. So just in January and in March, they launched the uh, Redmi 9T smartphone in the Nigerian market. And then again in March, they launched the Redmi Note. There are launches of Vivo and Oppo phones that are going on up and down the continent almost every day. So much that I don't even put it in the newsletter simply because it'd be like yet another <laughs> Chinese handset launch. I mean, people just get bored of it. But that then kind of leads us into a conversation about the Transin ecosystem. So a lot of people don't understand that Transin not only sells the hardware, but it has these apps that it provides services on top of that uh, that hardware, much the same way that Apple does with its apps and services. One of their services is Boomplay with about 65 million consumers. And before we get to an update on Boomplay, I just want to tell everybody about the Tencent-owned music streaming platform Jukes, who just signed a licensing agreement with the digital rights agency Merlin to access Merlin's huge library for both free and paid streaming services. Plus, Cobus, this might be great for you. They have a karaoke feature that mm. they're also streaming on Jukes, and it's available in a number of Asian countries here in Southeast Asia and South Africa. So South Africa looks like it's going to be one of the main battlegrounds for Chinese app services. We're going to talk about a couple more that have come into the South African market, but it does kind of bring up the music market. So, Alexandria, talk to us about Transin and Boomplay and the music streaming services. Sure. So, um, as you said, Transient has this music streaming service, Boomplay. And one of the really interesting things about Boomplay is it's extremely focused. The music offered on its platform is extremely pan-African, which is something rare. I mean, there's Spotify and there's Apple Music, but one thing to highlight is that Spotify, prior to a few months ago, was not available in a lot of key markets throughout Africa. And then uh, Apple Pay, uh, Apple Music is expensive. I think it's five to seven dollars per month. 
So, I mean, paying five to seven dollars for a music streaming service is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people on the con continent, myself included. So, um, but what Boomplay has done is they they entered a, uh, struck a deal with Universal Music Group or UMG, and they ha now have access to UMG's music catalog in 40 new countries in Africa. So now the total number of countries that Boomplay is able to operate in and stream this broad list of music is now 47 African countries. Now Boomplay users will have access to popular artists like Tiwa Savage, which is hugely, she's hugely popular from Nigeria, Solti Soul out of Kenya, Diamond Platinums, Techno, Black Coffee. And these are huge arti artists that, are, that really represent Pan-African music. And um, users will also have access to things to hip hop and pop from the U.S. like The Baby, Billie Eilish, and The Weeknd. So this highlights the competition for music streaming in Africa and for Pan-African music. Uh, as a lot of people will tell you, and as you'll know, is Afrobeats and large African artists are becoming extremely popular worldwide. We saw Burner Boy win a Grammy. So now all of these music streaming services are taking notice. So Spotify, after years and years and years of being in service, recently expanded to Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Nigeria, and Zimbabwe. It took them a really long time, and they're still not available in key markets like Kenya. And then another thing to highlight about Boomplay is they're doing the classic approach of a lot of Chinese tech companies when they enter new, mar new markets. They've done this free as a business model approach or this freemium approach where due to COVID-19, they started to offer free streaming on their platform. So they're well positioned and they're ready and they understand the importance of localization in uh, markets throughout Africa. And I think they're well positioned to become streaming giants in the years that come. I don't know how Spotify's uptake will look in uh, African countries because in order to access Spotify's premium services, you have to pay with a credit card. And a lot of people don't have credit cards or aren't able to do international bank transfers to access these services. Yeah, it seems like if you can't pay with mobile money, that is a non-starter. Exactly. And, you know, one thing to back to, you know, just Boomplay is that Boomplay has Boomplay under the transient brand has their own um, digital payments platform, Palm Pay. <laughs> yep, so they have Palm Pay. Yeah. So it's, again, another one of these apps. Cobus, it's interesting because the dynamics that are happening in the streaming market are very similar to what's happening in the video market. And you've commented a number of occasions about Netflix that's really growing in popularity. And there's this emergence of a really of an African digital content business that we hadn't seen before. Kobus, talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in the video space. Yes, so this this is this is big. Netflix is rolling out um, in South Africa, in Nigeria, and in other key African markets. And at the same time, generally the the, the competition is heating up. We've seen um, HBO Max, for example, also being interested in in, in more African production. Um, so I think I think people are realizing that Africa is a really is a really important media market. The 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 music side of this media market is I think is particularly interesting because you know w w one of the things I think in a lot of in a lot of cases um, you know I think people and, and this is true for for things like mobile phones you know people think of, of of Africa as a market for the for for you know a small group of very cheap products frequently you know as, as, as not a market that has particularly has as as power you know has a lot of power or a lot of like strong ideas about product differentiation in 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 music that's really not true like Africa is a, is a music superpower and one of the you know like with 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 just you know kind of Africans who aren't even particularly into particularly kind of like music nerds having insanely good taste in music um, and you know so so it's it's, it's a very interesting feature because it's 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 uh, you know Africa has never stopped producing music in its history and it's never ha you know it, it it never stepped away from having you know kind of massive pan continental kind of recording industries and the problem so far has been frequently has been rights um, and actually just kind of keeping keeping those catalogs in print or keeping or digitizing them and one of the amazing things that Boomplay did was they actually they actually contacted a lot of a lot of labels on the ground so a lot of so Boomplay um, digitized helped 
to digitize a lot of African music for the first time, and then also, you know, kind of so, sewed up the the digital like streaming rights to them. So it's not only that that Boomplay moved in more quickly; they also have, have an actually much much larger much larger catalog than a lot of their their Western competitors. Um, and in Africa, that that really counts for a lot. And one little footnote to that on Boomplay: uh, late last year, the company announced that it is going to be expanding into the francophone market much more aggressively, looking for customers not only in in West Africa and in traditional francophone countries in Africa, but also going into Europe and to the United States as well for diaspora African uh, francophone speakers. So very interesting on that. For those of you still not familiar with the, with Boomplay, it is a joint venture between NetEase and Transin. NetEase is one of the large portals in China. So while the Chinese are not big in the long-form video streaming market like Netflix in Africa, at least not yet, they are doing quite well in the short-form market. So there's two big apps, and one of them you'll be familiar with and another one probably not. One is TikTok, and that's by ByteDance, and the other is Viscuit, another transient property. So TikTok and Viscuit, TikTok, I don't know how many users, I don't think they've announced their uptake in Africa. They were opening up offices in South Africa last year, and there was expressions of interest in the African market. Viscuit, for those of you not familiar, had at last count about 10 million followers and was quite successful. Again, Viscuit's like TikTok. It's a TikTok competitor. Uh, you know, Alexandria, do you see people using TikTok in Kenya? So I think that my analysis of the situation would be a little biased because I live in Nairobi, which is, you know, this huge metropolitan city. And in Nairobi, I will say that I do see people using TikTok, but <laughs> I mean, I'm giving away my age. So I'm I'm 28, and I don't see a lot of people in my age bracket using TikTok. But people who are you're a too younger, old for TikTok now, right? You're <laughs> exactly. you're an old woman I'm a now. <laughs> that's that's for Gen Z, but you know, people from Gen Z, a little bit younger, maybe 21 and under, are definitely using TikTok, and it's becoming um it's becoming very popular because when TikTok rolled out in in South Africa in particular, they presented a bunch of localized challenges that encouraged user uptake. Um, and I think that people have seen Instagram as kind of, it's, it's harder to get followers. It's harder to become an influencer on, on Instagram these days. So people are looking to TikTok as a new avenue to become an influencer. Now, Viscuit, from my understanding, um, when I'd engaged with Viscuit, it seemed that it was a platform that was more popular in smaller cities throughout Kenya. Most of Kenya's population is not in Nairobi. So I think that that's important. And we kind of saw a similar thing with uh, TikTok's original platform in Kenya, uh, with, with the original TikTok in the, the original TikTok in China, where uh, TikTok's China version became really popular throughout metropolitan cities like Beijing. But we had smaller platforms like Kwaishou, for example, becoming the most popular platforms in second tier cities and smaller um, and smaller regions throughout China. So I wonder if uh, the, the split between Biscuit and TikTok in throughout Africa will be similar. That's what I've been interested in trying to find out. Very interesting parallels there. And uh, the TikTok of China, of course, is Douyin. You know, Kobus, Alexandria makes a very interesting point about the, the uptick and that she, like you and I, are too old for it. But in a continent like Africa, where the demographics are very much in TikTok's favor. So Africa is a place where the median age is 19.7 years old. In many countries, it's as low as 16, 17 years old. That is right in the sweet spot for where TikTok wants to grab users. So I could imagine that this is very fertile ground for TikTok to build up an enormous base of users, especially as the bandwidth now starts to increase with Facebook, Google, and the peace cable that Alexander talked about coming online in the next couple of years. So video seems like it's gonna play a huge role in the African digital ecosystem. What you're seeing already is, is this kind of explosion of youth culture in, in Africa, like already during the pandemic. So, um, Alexandra, I'm blanking on her name. Do you know the 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 girl with the sunglasses, the Kenyan, young Kenyan woman with the sunglasses? She, she, she makes these kind of like kind of quips about never leaving the house. She's just been in this... Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yes. this viral sensation. Um, and and she, she she recently said yeah. that... Like, like, she's become so famous that she's, like, friends with Rihanna now. Um, and and that happened during mm -hmm. the pandemic. She, she recently posted saying, like, oh, this is a year ago when I posted my first my first picture. And in that time, you know, she became, became this kind of international superstar. On what platform? 
I think on Instagram, yeah. among others, but oh, yeah, I'm not 100% sure. Elsa Majimbo. Yeah, yeah, she's 19 years old. Elsa Majimbo. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so that's just a, a kind of, I think, an early indicator of, of what's what is of a real kind of like youthquake, I think, coming like a media driven kind of like mass continental wide, you know, kind of youth culture that I think is, is going gonna, is gonna to start developing over the next year or so. Now, I mentioned that China and Chinese companies are not very strong right now in the long-form video streaming market in Africa, but that may not be the case for very long. Let's take Start Times off the table because Start Times is a distributor of content uh, on traditional satellite television, but we're starting to see now uh, the Chinese companies like ITE uh, which, for those of you not familiar with ITE, it's basically a combination of YouTube and Netflix kind of put together, mostly a Netflix where it kind of streams, uh, you know, pre-recorded dramas, movies, and things like that in China. It's huge in China. Uh, they just announced their launch in the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt with over 3,000 pieces of content on the platform. The website and app for ITE are available in 12 languages, including English and Arabic. Membership plans for streaming will start at $5 a month in the Persian Gulf. Again, in a place like the United Arab Emirates, that's a very competitive price. Um, when we hear about ITE making these inroads to start exploring international markets, what do you think the potential is for a company like that, Alexandria? Um, I think the potential for ITE's international expansion is huge. So, I mean, my first experience with ITE is, of course, in China. And I would actually I would actually use ITE to watch U.S. television shows. So there's this show, Rick and Morty. And ITE was famous for having translated with Chinese subtitles episodes of Rick and Morty, like within a few hours of them coming out in the U.S. So I remember like being on my lunch break at work and watching Rick and Morty on ITE. But yeah, their international, their international uptake is huge. So they have 500 million users across the world. And um, one of their big markets is South Korea. And what they've done is they've capitalized on this growing interest in pan-Asian content. Um, like for my for my nieces and nephews and cousins back in the US, even they love K-pop. They love anything that has like that, I don't know, that that uh East Asian look to it. They're super into it, which is interesting for me to watch. But um so, you know, in the Middle East, they have 3,000 titles now. They're offering services in Arabic and English. And one big thing that I've been interested in to, to see um, is how they're going to roll out popular features that are popular on their, their China platform. So one thing that ITE realized early on is that people want to engage when they're watching TV. Just because I'm, you know, just because I don't leave my house and I like to stream television doesn't mean I don't want to talk to people. I just want to talk to people about the things that I watch. So what they did in China is they uh, unrolled this feature called bullet subtitles or danmu in Chinese. And basically what these uh, subtitles allow you to do is comment as you're watching on a show and also see other users' comments. So if any, if I'm, I'm sure you and Kobus have seen uh, Asian television or East Asian television, it looks very, it looks very normal if you're used to watching Asian television. You're just seeing all of these words fly across the screen. It's very, very like engaging. Um, it's very, very high energy. And this feature was really popular in China and they're actually trying to mimic this in the Middle East. So there's a, um, a K-pop, idol style television show called you and you with you and they're offering this service called cast support where you as somebody who watches can support a certain cast member so i think that this will be something that's very very uh that will be very uh popular with them i mean you can even see youtube itself youtube recently rolled out this feature with uh with the with, with the live chat so you can now comment on a video as it's going out live. And it's been hugely popular in the US, especially in this pandemic era where no one has any friends. So um, I think that, uh, yeah, Aichi's uptake in the Middle East will be will be quite good. But one thing that they'll have to do is compete with local competitors as well. So uh, apparently one of the Middle East's largest free-to-air platforms launched their own streaming service. And they say that they have 1.4 million paying customers. And then Aichi will also have to compete with Netflix, who's offer, also offering content tailored to the Middle East and content in Arabic. So it won't be an easy road. It's not just an open market for them. They'll definitely have to innovate. Very competitive. And Kobus, you've done a lot of research and writing over the years about the popularity of kung fu and martial arts films from China and how those are very popular in Africa, and they've been so for decades. 
We've seen with Star Times now that some of the Chinese dramas have actually gained in popularity, and the production value on Chinese dramas has gone up tremendously over the past 10 years. Where 10, 15 years ago, the Korean pop or the K-pop or the K-wave content that Alexandria talked about was really the benchmark in East Asia. And around the world, people are watching this. Now, I think for Americans and Europeans, they think it's kind of ridiculous. But trust me, as somebody who's traveled as much in Latin America, the Middle East, and even in parts of Africa now, you're seeing the K-pop and the K-wave actually make inroads. And then Star Times now has dedicated channels in you know all of its countries that it serves for the Chinese dramas translated into the local languages in Lingala, in, in Swahili, and so forth. And then on top of it, Kobus, there's the Chinese Super League, which is the professional soccer uh, league in China that uses quite a few African stars, which has also been gaining popularity. And I guess I'm curious, Kobus, to get your take on whether or not you think that Chinese content programming and sports may have an opportunity to find a niche market, maybe not a mass market, but niches can be very lucrative right now, especially one in as large as Africa, so that that might provide an opening for somebody like IGE to come in and exploit that niche. Yes, I think there's definitely there's definitely potential for that. Keep in mind that that Africans are, are quite used to watching imported content. You know, it's it's there's there's been in, particularly in in certain markets there's there's been relatively f- l- less kind of content particularly tailored to to you know kind of to their tastes and and a lot a lot of kind of imported content. Um, so Africans, you know, well, what we've seen over the last the, the last few years is that um, is that both Latin American and Latin American telenovela has become quite popular in Africa, um, with several several kind of African versions taking over that same that same format, um, and then Asian drama has also become quite quite popular. Um, and I think you know that that that's only going to increase. I think um, you know, um, th- and and as you say, the kind of rollout of sports with that. I think you know is is well definitely. I think yes, like definitely a, a, a niche is at, at 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 the very least. I think a niche market. I think is is a possibility. Um, Alexandria, in in terms of the have you have you seen um, Chinese entities starting to distribute more African made content? Because I, I know that um, I know that Star Times has has African language specific channels. Do do you have any idea of like like how much how much kind of like older African like like Nigerian and South African dramas and so on, they're purchasing to to be circulating on those channels. I remember last year they had there were a lot of plans from Star Times, particularly to create dubbing studios and local content in Kenya and Nigeria. But I actually haven't seen a ton of that content. The one big show that they did had they had they had a um, Star Times had a reality show for like a relationship style reality show you know those shows are really popular in china so they basically <laughs> took that chinese version and directly transplanted it into the market here so that's the only one that i remember that was um that was kind of like an african made television show what i've seen more often though from places like star times uh, as you were saying before is like translated and dubbed versions of chinese television shows and then even as well some some indian content that's being dubbed over as well that's what I've seen mostly. Kobus, there's not shows coming from Africa into the China market in part because it wouldn't really be that appealing culturally, just the same way we don't see that in the US and we don't see it out here in Asia. However, uh, what we have seen over the past few years is that Africa is serving as a backdrop for Chinese content. So obviously we have Wolf Warrior. We've talked about that. That was a kind of huge blockbuster movie. Uh, but more recently, in back in 2019, uh, Chinese producers filmed a whole series, a whole season of the series Hunting uh, in Kenya, using Kenyan actors, Kenyan police. And Hunting is a big budget drama police show. And they go to different cities around the world and film it. And they picked Nairobi as a backdrop. So I would expect more of these co-productions to happen where Africa is a backdrop for big Chinese stars and big Chinese uh, programs rather than an actual African show being put onto Chinese television, that that seems a little bit far fetched. You know what? Actually, like I, I I see I see what you mean, but I think I think we're already seeing a change in that. Like the I don't know if you if you kept track of of the Netflix show Blood and Water, which is made in South Africa um, with a with a fully African cast, um, and that that became it, it it hit number one in stream in, in Netflix's kind of internal numbers in fifty different countries. Um, so Netflix is is, is rolling out. 
um, uh, African-made dramas, both in, in South Africa and in, in Nigeria, which uh, seem to be tailored to a wider a continental African market and also a diaspora market and an African-American market. Um, and Blood and Water did well among African-American viewers, apparently. So so I think I think that's already shifting. Um, I, I think that the streamers are already aware that's right. So it could be the streaming market that offers yeah. the distribution opportunity as opposed to broadcast television, yes, which might be more yes. con conventional and traditional. Alexandria, let's stay in the Middle East. We also saw an announcement in March uh, from JD.com, which those of you not familiar with JD, it's Jingdong, which is the second largest e-commerce platform behind Tmall or Taobao in China. The Arab News Report was incorrect when they called it China's largest e-commerce platform. They signed a partnership agreement with Namshi, the fashion and lifestyle platform owned by Dubai's Amar Malls. They too, like IGE, are entering into the Persian Gulf market. They're doing e-commerce and localization with uh, Namshi. And it's just interesting to see how JD, like Alibaba, is now starting to look beyond the borders of China. Yeah, I, it's hugely interesting to see. I mean, a lot of us know Alibaba outside of China, but people people don't really know JD. Uh, and even in China, like whereas Taobao is something where it's more of like the... It's not the black market. It's more of like where you can get anything and everything. You can get really quirky items. JD is more trusted as a platform for high value items and electronics and even foreign brands. So it's interesting to see that JD is kind of following that model as it enters the Middle East. They're still staying with, uh, they're partnering with a lifestyle brand. They're doing high value items. And I think that they're, I think that they're well positioned because one thing that JD is known for and the reason why it's so trusted with electronics and high value items is that they're wonderful at, log at logistics. So um, and JD is planning to do a similar thing with its partnerships in, in Dubai. They're partnering with Agility, a world-class freight forwarding company, to make sure that they're able to get things from Chinese manufacturers to markets in the Middle East and they're able to get things to people quickly at a reduced cost. And that's why I think that Chinese e-commerce platforms are really, have really, really managed to corner the market uh, abroad. I'd even say in the US with Alibaba, even though it takes like maybe two months, like if you know you want something from Alibaba, order two months in advance, but it will get to you and it will get to you for less than $5. Whereas if you ship things across the US in order for it to get to you in a timely manner, it costs just the same and it's more expensive. So it's really interesting to see these Chinese e-commerce platforms copying this model and using their knowledge of massive logistics networks to enter other countries. I think that that's the most important thing about these e-commerce platforms, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting because here in Southeast Asia, Lazada is Alibaba's main front. So the Alibaba bought Lazada, which is big in about 10 countries, I think it is. But the market here is even becoming slower because it's so competitive. But Alibaba has not gone into the African market in the same way that it's gone into other emerging markets with, again, a brand like Lazada. And what it started to do, it's going in with AliExpress. So last year on Double Eleven, now for those of you not familiar with Double Eleven, it is the shopping orgy of a century. I mean, it is just bizarre how much Chinese people can buy in one 24-hour period. I love Double Eleven. I mean, it is just crazy. It's, it's called Singles Day. It's great. It's a holiday. It is. It, it really is. I mean, and so if you haven't experienced Double Eleven, and it is something to be experienced, uh, last two years ago when I was in China, it's on November 11th, and they call it Double Eleven because it's basically four sticks. And the idea is that single people, it's an anti-Valentine's Day. So you don't need Valentine's Day. Buy something for yourself. <laughs> and they've turned it into this giant thing where I think last year they did $50 billion in a 24-hour period. It was enormous the year before when they did a billion dollars an hour. Now they've exceeded a billion dollars an hour and but what was really fascinating was that as I was putting together our daily newsletter, I have a search for China, Zambia, which is my normal Google searches that I go through country by country. Lo and behold, an ad came up on Zambian media for Double Eleven in Zambia, and it was sponsored by AliExpress. Hmm. And I thought that was so interesting. And then at the yeah. same time, I'm starting to see all of these kind of YouTubers do how-to videos on how to get your stuff from AliExpress through South African customs, through Kenyan customs, all these how-to videos, how to package it, how to say it, how to do everything right so you don't pay the duties on it. And Cobus, it's starting to make me think that maybe AliExpress has the potential to launch in Africa without actually launching. 
it can come all from China because it can be this more organic thing. And all of a sudden, African consumers who've been limited by their e-commerce choices, now that logistics services are on the ground to deliver products, AliExpress can do all of that from China. It does seem like it, it. Like you know, if it works that way, I think it'll be very exciting uh, for for African e-commerce as a whole. It'll be, it'll it'll definitely kind of widen the landscape. Um, Alexandria, when you when you look at your your position in in Nairobi, do you um, how much competition do you foresee from local competitors? Because in South Africa, I think the the the, the e-commerce market is is pretty competitive. Um, you know, there's 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 large South African companies, and they've they've um, kind of joined forces so that so, you know. So that you have um, these kind of like kind of mega malls, you know, basically online, you know, where where you can buy beyond kind of product product um, you know borders um, across a whole bunch of different kind of product genres, um, and and frequently kind of pulling in you know kind of online clothing retailers and so on in as kind of as subsidiaries. Um, so I think for that, that's one of the reasons why I think Amazon is actually you know Amazon is obviously as a presence in South Africa, but but I think many. South Africans tend to not buy from Amazon because it's a it's a bother to get stuff into the country and pass customs and you pay in dollar and and so on. So how how but so, so a lot of them buy from South African the, the South African alternatives and South Africa, South Africa has been quite quite kind of proactive in in, in filling that space. Um, what, what is it looking from your perspective? So in Kenya, the way that e-commerce, what e-commerce looks like for most of, uh, for most, especially friends that I know that are engaged in e-commerce, it's a lot of people getting, buying bulk items for, from abroad and then selling them on Instagram. And that's a huge market here. That's how a lot of people buy things because it's within this trusted network and you're able to, let's say somebody sends you something and it doesn't turn out right, you can blast them on Instagram. So it creates this network of trust, right? But the problem with that is that most of the time, people, everybody knows that a lot of these people will get stuff in bulk from abroad and then hike up the price. So you're paying extra essentially just because it's this trusted network that exists. Um, so we have these Instagram competitors and then we also have other companies from China that are trying to make their own uh, play at leveraging this trust network and their position as a company that has a direct line to China. So one company like that here is Kill em All. Um, and uh, I think it was in 2020, it was in 2020, I was able to tour their facility. And they are a, I believe they're based in Changsha, Hunan. And they have decided to try to set up their own e-commerce platform here in Kenya, which leverages the fact that they have a direct line to manufacturers back in Changsha. And then they are able to sell things at, at, the, at similar prices as what they would sell, as what they would go for in China. And it basically cuts out this like Instagram, digital market, middleman um system. But I think that the issue with that and what will become an issue here in Kenya, and I think even Chinese e-commerce platforms will see, as local e-commerce platforms are seeing, is that Kenya's instituted this new digital service tax, which adds a tax on all uh, services that are con that are conducted online. And they're definitely going to feel the, the crunch. You know, first you have the import cost, then you have to get it past customs, and then you have a tax on top of it for it being a digital service. So I don't know what e-commerce will look like here in Kenya in the next five years because there are all these factors that are pulling at it. Um, but yeah, I do think that there are a lot of local competitors here in the Kenyan market, but they're super, super local as in like, I'm a person that has 3,000 followers on Instagram and a group of friends and I sell to them directly. They pay with M-Pesa and then I call my favorite Boda guy, sorry, my favorite motorcycle delivery guy and he sends it to them. So that's what it looks like here in Kenya right now. I wonder if the African Continental Free Trade Agreement may complicate some of those taxation issues. And again, I'm speaking completely out of turn here since I don't know anything about this. But if it's going to be easier to move things across borders, then goods can be ordered in Rwanda or in South Africa where they don't have the same level of tax, just brought over land and sold into Kenya. Hmm. Just a thought that that could come from China. So interesting that that could be a concern. Kobus, to your point about this could be a good thing, it also could be a bad thing because... The Chinese are so big and they bring so much sophistication to it. They could come into the market and make it very difficult for others to compete, much like what we're seeing with Amazon and Walmart in the U.S. That if you want to try and sell books now in the U.S. online, it's almost impossible. Nobody's going to fund you. 
So if Alibaba does become a big player in Africa, much like it has here in Southeast Asia, that could make it more difficult for African startups to raise money to compete in the sectors or the verticals where Alibaba is now present and active. Again, we haven't seen Alibaba take really strong steps, but given that their world is getting much smaller now, that their access into Europe and the United States is reducing, the appeal of Africa might be quite sexy to them because there just really isn't as much of the world that they can go to as they once thought they could. Alexandria, let's close our discussion in South Africa with another very famous Chinese e-commerce provider, Didi Chuxing. Didi is the Beijing-based ride-hailing company that operates in 400 Chinese cities. It has more than half a billion users. Yes, billion users. Uh, They operate in 16 countries in Asia, Europe, Latin America, and Australia. And last month, they launched in South Africa for the first time to do a trial market in Cape Town. But they're going to face some tough competition there from Uber and Bolt. Talk to us about Didi Chuxing. So, um... Kobus, when, when Didi finally unvi- finally unrolls, you'll have to ride and tell us what the experience is like because I remember when they make it to Joburg. When you make it to <laughs> Joburg, right? Um, I so I remember when Didi launched in China. I, I feel like when I arrived in China, all of this all of this tech stuff was happening. But when I arrived in China, Didi was 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 fighting it out with Uber, and this was like this is one of the most historic tech battles that I love to reference when I talk about how Chinese companies operate. Is that so? Back when Uber entered the Chinese market, Didi Didi was also on the scene and Uber and Didi had to face off. And what Didi did is they offered huge discounts to encourage usership. And me being like, you know, being a young person who who was, you know, on a student on a student stipend, I definitely played into this. I remember me and my friends, if we were going somewhere, we would check both both apps and we'd see which one was cheaper that day. And that would be the one that we took. So Didi used this model and they managed to beat out Uber. And now they're 80. They uh, have 80 percent of the rideshare market in China and near Monopoly. But um, and I'm sure Kobus can speak to this more. This may not be so easy in South Africa, actually. They're going to face a ton of regulatory challenges. As we've heard recently with Uber, they've been in this famous debate with drivers about whether they're considered workers or independent contractors. And we all know that Uber lost a labor dispute in the UK, and now they have to offer benefits to their drivers. So they're no longer able to kind of shirk that extra cost off to giving their drivers less benefits in order to encourage people to take, to use their service at a cheaper cost. So um, as I've heard, drivers in South Africa want these very same benefits, and they're filing a class action lawsuit. Is that true, Kobus? Is- That's what I heard too. Yeah, like the drivers I've spoken with yeah. have been quite unhappy about Uber. Uber is not a very popular company among its own its own drivers. With its own drivers. So if when Didi enters or as Didi enters the South African market, they're going to have to deal with this as to, as well. They're going to have to deal with labor disputes and it might affect their ability to use the classic model that a lot of Chinese companies have used when entering foreign markets of offering super cheap services to encourage usership. I don't know what that's going to look like for them and um, you know, given these new labor disputes, if it's going to be as easy. Um, and then another thing that I'll say about Didi's expansion into South Africa is that a lot of analysts are saying that this is Didi's effort to increase valuation because they're going for an IPO at the end of the year. And what this says to me is that, wow, Africa's super valuable. <laughs> like, it's super valuable to the point where a company is entering the African market in an effort to boost their valuation. And a lot, we'll see this with a lot of Chinese companies because it's a crowded market in China. And everybody that's using Didi in China is using Didi you're not going to see much more of an uptake in China. So that's why we've seen Didi expand to, I think South Africa is now the 14th international destination. And I think that this is a great signal to countries throughout Africa of how valuable their market is. Africa is the youngest continent. Africa is the continent with the, with the um, most new mobile uptake over the past five years. So as things as time continues, we can expect to see, at least I hope, and I, what I envision is seeing more Chinese companies entering the African market in earnest, trying to capture this young, hungry 
mobile-enabled market. Well, you know, kind of, it's it's just just adding to that. I think South Africa has been a, a really enthusiastic kind of up, uptake of of ride hailing, um, because there's a, a very large young population. Frequently, frequently they don't have enough money to actually afford a car, and there isn't a lot of public transport. The public transport that there is is is, is itself very complicated and, and you know kind of difficult to use and not very dependable. So there's a, there's a massive kind of market for ride hailing, and and I think in terms of price, we, we may well see Uber and Didi kind of race to the bottom, um, as you said, Alexandria, because Uber, you know, like halfway through the pandemic, Uber actually launched a, a, a service in South Africa called Uber Go, which is which is less expensive than Uber X, um, with using kind of smaller hashback uh, hashback cars, um, hatchback cars. I mean, and um, you know, so so and, and that is that has seen some uptake already. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of exactly which kind of price range Didi moves into and whether it's able to compete there. Final thoughts from you, Alexandria, to think about all of the announcements Mm. that we've had just in February and March of this year, but looking at the Chinese tech presence in Africa more broadly, where are we in this moment right now? So this is this is my general thought about tech in Africa. You know, a number of African countries, Kenya, Nigeria, um, they are they have these massive plans to create smart cities and tech-enabled economies by 2030. And it may seem like it's 2021 now, but 2030 is fast approaching and they have a long way to go. So I think that Africa right now is at a revolutionary space for the tech industry. Not only are African governments interested in welcoming more tech innovation to their countries, we also have these Chinese companies that are facing oversaturation back home and then also facing increasing regulation with the U.S. because of the U.S.-China tech war. We see how hard it was for TikTok to to, to provide short videos to the youth in, in the U.S. So we now have all of these companies looking, these Chinese companies looking for a new market. And here we have these African countries that are super ready to take on new tech and super hungry for tech innovation. So I think that we're at a revolutionary moment. And in 10 years, we'll look back and say that we were, I mean, I guess we're always in we're always in the process of making history, but now more than ever, I think we are seeing uh, tech history in the making. There's no doubt that the pace of announcements is picking up a lot. And it's hard to actually keep track of all of the Chinese tech announcements in Africa because they're spread out in lots of nooks and crannies on the internet. They're not centralized in like a tech crunch or, or CNET or anything like that. So if you are interested in following what's happening in the African tech sector by Chinese companies, the hardware companies, the video streaming companies, software apps, all of it, you're going to want to follow Alexandria's writing in our new weekly Tech Digest, where she's going to sometimes have news, sometimes have some analysis, where we talked about doing a story on cryptocurrency, some of the mobile money areas that the Chinese are starting to get involved with. And the breadth of it is really, as Alexandra pointed out, is what's so important here. And from that, we can start to extract some really key trends. But it's hard to follow, no doubt. That is a service available to our subscribers of our newsletter and our website, so we hope that you will subscribe. Alexandra, you are a subscriber, so we're very grateful to you on that. If people want to follow you on the interweb and where they can find you, where is the best place for them to reach you? The best place for people to reach me is on Twitter, Alexandria Sahai, Alexandria, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-I-A, and then Sahai, S-A-H-A-I. Um, that's where I'm tweeting from. And then also I do do videos on YouTube. That was my, as you said, that was how I got my start. You are a great YouTuber. Let me tell you, those videos were amazing in China. So I hope that you're going to pick up your YouTubing in Kenya now. Yes, I am. Um, I'm actually in the process of revamping and reawakening my YouTube account. And if you want to follow it, it's Lanlan61. So L-A-N-L-A-N-6-1. And Lanlan's just my, for all of my, for all of my homies back in China, they know me as Lanlan. Lan so I keep that name okay, with me. Okay, <laughs> I like Lanlan. So if you want to follow Lanlan on YouTube or on Twitter, we will have links to it in the show notes. We're also going to put a copy of her Tech Digest in the show notes as well so you can read that but this is an invaluable resource and there's really nobody else out there covering the china africa tech space on a regular basis it's wide open as an area and it takes though some understanding 
of the Chinese tech space, and you have to have lived there. This is not something that you can just kind of pick up from reading it in newspapers and magazines and things like that. So the fact that Alexandria lived there, experienced it, covered it from there, and is now in Nairobi makes her an invaluable resource. So Alexandria, thank, thank you. you so much for taking the time to join us. It was my and pleasure. we're really excited to read your next column. Thank you. I'm excited to put it out too. I'm, I'm in the process of thinking of some great ideas and talking to some people. So it should be exciting. Kobus, the takeaway from me from the discussion with Alexandria is the breadth of things that are happening. And I have a feeling that most people listening to this show are unaware of just how much is happening in how many different parts of the tech ecosystem in Africa. And we did not even touch cryptocurrency. And there's a lot of news in the digital yuan space, even in Africa. We didn't talk about mobile payment systems. We didn't talk about the VC space. Start times, we didn't go into detail. There is so much going on. And I think in some ways it's inspired by the U.S.-China tensions and the sanctions in the U.S. that they're looking for new markets. But at the same time, as Alexandria pointed out, Africa is a young market. It's a, a, it's a new market. And this is exciting for tech companies that are in search of growth. And Africa has a lot of possibilities and potential for growth. Yeah, I think I think a lot of this story is less about Africa or China itself and more about uh, traditional Western companies having a blind spot about the potential in Africa. Um, you know, being very risk averse um, about rolling out there, and if they roll out, only they only do it in in, in very small markets. You know, and so on. So, so I think I, you know the, a more a less risk averse approach as the Chinese have, have tended to take. You know, there there's real benefits there, um, and you know, and and we, and we seen that the market itself is very kind of enthusiastically responds to many of these initiatives. But to be fair here about American companies, MasterCard just did a major investment in the financial services space in Nigeria, in the mobile money space. Visa is has on record, as far as I know, the largest investment in African tech to date. So there is a lot of American corporate activity in the digital space, but I'd be interested to hear your take on the future of Chinese engagement on this front, in part because we've been getting some early indications that the digital Silk Road and technology in specific is going to be a key theme at the upcoming FOCAC. And as we've talked about on previous shows, there does appear to be a shift away from the traditional infrastructure financing and also into the look, the, the search for resources and more into now health policy and digital policies. What do you think about that? I, I think that, um, that I agree with you that, that it, it looks like that's going to be a, a real kind of growth field. I, I think it's, a, it's also a, a reaction um, to, to how, how difficult it's been, it's proven to, to build large scale infrastructure and particularly to finance it. And with it, I think it's a, a kind of a, a, a kind of a risk that, that African governments are willing to take that if you that that you can get a lot of that development work done or at least some form of development work done by simply expanding the internet as far as you can um, you know so so what I and this here I'm, I'm guessing um, but you know I, I, I would guess that that some African um, policymakers are, are taking a gamble that if you that that if you roll out internet far and wide and that you know that um, if, if you set up a system similar to Alibaba, where lots of different individual sellers across the continent can sell little things to 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 local to local populations, that might in itself kind of present a, a kind of a massive kind of de developmental kind of leapfrogging moment. Um, you know that that that's my guess, seeing very very much from the outside um, that there that there is a um, you know that there is a kind of a, an acknowledgement that building bridges, roads, and ports are difficult, and that in a way that you might be able to 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 get some development bang for your buck if you simply invest in in rolling out internet because that's a lot cheaper and easier to finance particularly because there's also political will for it from Beijing at the moment what, what do you think I do I think there's a lot of political will from Beijing to expand the digital Silk Road I think this is where China wants to go again Africa's overall importance to China is diminishing in the traditional sectors that is in terms of uh, resource extraction you pointed out and Deborah Bradigan pointed out on an earlier show that in the 
the construction space, the Chinese are very big. So 30% of all worldwide construction is taking place in Africa. But that's a very different model than the Chinese financing that construction. So while we might see Chinese construction companies very active, we may not see them as active in the financing and the resource extraction sectors. And that's where I think health and digital will probably play a much bigger role in China's engagement strategy. One very quick side note story before we go. It's a story that we featured in today's newsletter Uh, China's BYD, which is Build Your Dreams, they are the second largest electric vehicle maker in the world behind Tesla. They made a very big announcement that could have some really profound implications on the Democratic Republic of Congo. They announced that in all of their future cars, in their entire model lineup, they are going to switch out using nickel, cobalt, manganese batteries and to use instead lithium iron lithium iron phosphate batteries. So we've heard this story before, Cobus. Last year, we talked about how Tesla is experimenting with a cobalt-free battery. Now we have BYD, a big player in the EV space, moving beyond cobalt. This could have very important ramifications for the DRC, where the Chinese are dominant players in the cobalt extraction space. But it doesn't seem like American and European automakers are as advanced now in moving beyond cobalt. Yeah, it's it's going to be very interesting to watch. I think I think in in you know I, I can imagine moving beyond cobalt being bad news for the DRC, but I think it's good news for the rest of us. You know, it'll it'll make it much easier to to roll out electric vehicles without having them being dependent on one particular very complex complicated supply chain and what we've seen you know the the drc you know it's a complicated place and it's a place that where where you know really kind of rank forms of exploitation tend to be kind of baked into the system so we've seen that it, it's it's proven very difficult for the drc to for example to rid um child labor from from their cobalt uh, supply chains so you know sorry for the drc but i think if the world can move beyond cobalt great that's a good thing so That'll do it for this edition. As you've heard, keeping track of all these things is not easy. There's a lot going on, but they are spread around. I look for these stories every single day when I put the newsletter together. I have a tech background in journalism. I am very interested in this subject. So if you are interested in China-Africa tech issues and African tech uh, trends, you will want to sign up for our newsletter. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You can try it out free for 30 days See if you like it. If you do, in fact, like it and you want to sign up, use the promo code podcast and we'll take 20% off the price of your subscription. So once again, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. It's really the only place out there that will give you a digest of tech, politics, art, culture, every aspect of what's going on in the China Africa space every single day. We deliver it at 6 a.m. Washington time, just in time for you to take your subway ride to work when you can go back on the subway, that is, hopefully very soon. So that'll do it for this edition of the podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.